Yeah, I think I think we're getting, as I said, I, I think we're getting from the abstract to like mm-hmm. exact part. It's like, okay, how do I really, how does this really connect together? How does this work? And how we can really use it in our projects? Yeah. I like just to say about uh, how do I feel about using this? It's like, yeah. uh, to me, uh, once I got the grasp of it, and like, it feels like when you go from manual manual memory managed to automatic memory management. All right. right? So garbage collection. Yeah. Yeah. In, in this case, uh, the comparison here is that when you use garbage collection, you, you delegate control of a part of your application. Instead of you managing the memory, you delegate that to something else. And of course, we know if you memory manage by hand, you can probably make it faster on simple cases. But as things get more complicated, it's harder and harder to make it right and correct. Mm-hmm. In that sense, Patron is kind of like that. The resolvers are like taking, taking the control of calling the functions from you. And instead, you're moving to a higher level abstraction where you say, okay, I have this information. I want this information. And these are how, how the attributes relate to each other. Go figure it out. Mm-hmm. Or also moving like from mutable to immutable. It's like this weight and pain that you had and now you don't have anymore. <laughs> that's, a, that's how I feel about it. <laughs> uh, another thing just uh, before we leave the, uh, the abstract is that another, this, this is another distinction between Python and the other system is that Python, uh, uh, the way I, I like to use Python and that I like to encourage people to use in Python is to make this a central part of all the information process, not just the API hit. And to make a comparison here, imagine if you have a UI that you list list users, and uh, you want to display a flag on the UI, depending if the user is underage or not. Would you... Imagine if you were a GraphQL schema writer, would you put underaged as part of your schema for the user? And I guess most people won't, would not do yeah, that because that's such a yeah. such a specific part of the system, right? Yes. So because of that, this means you now have two separate code spaces. One that runs inside of our GraphQL stuff and one that's is like a helper. But if we think about it, under, this information is actually could be quite useful for a lot of operations, of a lot of different things in your system. And in Python, you are encouraged to put that as part of your system. In Python, you are encouraged to write a resolver for that for a couple of reasons. One, it's quite trivial to write that resolver. Mm-hmm. Two, you don't need to complex. If you think that's a UI concern, you don't have to complex that with your server. Because Python allows these, these, these resolvers to be kind of distributed. So you can add more resolvers just on the client if you want. And at the mm-hmm. same time, if you decide to move that back to the server later, you could do that and your client would not, would not, would not care about it. He would not note, notice the difference. So Python encourages you to model every part of your system and give names, give attribute names to every piece of information in the whole flow of your system. And this is quite powerful because when you do it that way, it means that for every step of your processing, you have like a landmark. That's that attribute name. And when you're creating new process, 
you can hook up on every any step at any time. And this to me is what gets Peton to be something that over time it composes and makes uh, makes changing and evolving systems so good. Mm-hmm. So if you wanna yeah think about it, take something to think about it after this podcast. Think about these properties and how this can help. This might yeah, help so your this software. Would be like some kind of dynamic properties that we can calculate from the properties we already have. Yeah, and all of them, all of them are like that. Uh, resolvers, uh, all of them of the resolvers are like that. Yeah, this mm-hmm. uh, this idea is what makes me so passionate about Python. That's what like <laughs> makes me spend so so much of my own time because I'm pursuing this modeling idea. I'm pursuing this, and that's that's a novel thing. And uh, I, if it if it works, if it really works or not on the grand scale, I think we have to use and and time test it. Right. So let's try to recap a bit before we move on. Let's try to recap the REST, the GraphQL, and the pattern. So in REST, we have docs that tell you the endpoints and then what is inside. And the endpoints are the primary building blocks. In the GraphQL, the docs tells you the types and what they have. So the types are the primary building blocks. And in the pattern, the doc will be a list of attributes and then how they relate to each other. So the attributes are the building blocks. Yes, that's a, yeah, that's a quick way to try to spell the differences. <laughs> uh, do you think it's worth to add anything else? I mean, uh, not sure, because I mean, most of the things is about the thing that we just said before, right? The, this is um illustration to try to tell the people about Everything else that is said, really. Otherwise, we have to recap, we have to redo everything. Yeah. Okay. So, how do I go about using Python? Okay. So, now that we got most of the modeling principles of Python laid, and I hope it's understandable, and you, dear listener, if something doesn't make sense or you want to understand more, remember to reach out uh, on Slack. Uh, we have the links in the end. Yeah. But getting back, getting to a more practical side, what what it looks like to use Python and what what's the constructs you're gonna do. So the first thing you have to do is write your resolvers, like uh, we described before, because the resolvers is how you're gonna establish what your system can output and how the things relate. And from the resolvers, you create a parser in Python. And a parser is just a function that will take that will take your query and some environmental information. And the environment information can be the initial context that we talked before, like what's what's the data you have for me to use. Mm-hmm. So, so it, what's 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 involved in creating a parser? I do. It's not like I really need to write a parser, right? No, no. Creating a parser is calling a function from Python. Python has a function called parser so you call the parser function yeah. and that will return to you a parser and you just you just configure it and part of I the configuration it. of the oh sorry no no go yeah so it's more like a configuration of a parser and what it's supposed to do and yeah instead of create a parser you can say you configure you configure a parser i see okay mm-hmm. And the configuration of the parser includes mostly the resolvers, but it can have plugins and other things, but let's focus on the basics here. Mm-hmm. And after you create the parser, you run it. And 
By run it, I mean the parser itself is a function. You call it with the query, and the query runs, and you have the query in the environmental data that may include the current available information and other things. So this is where you put you would put like an API of some sorts. If you're trying to write an API with Python, this the parser would be your endpoint. Like you could write a REST endpoint. Mm -hmm. And at some place with a post request, the post request, yeah. you get the EQL transaction, and then you get the EQL transaction and run it through the parser. And then you get the response and spits that out to the user. Yeah. So this will be my handler for the specific endpoint. Yeah. It's like, mm -hmm. in that sense, it's like GraphQL because we are exposing a rich, a rich, uh, a rich API for the user. So the user has to send that message somewhere. And since HTTP is the most common, we just use HTTP in post. Same way as GraphQL does. Mm -hmm. But you are not limited to that, right? That's just a channel. You, you could do the same thing, use WebSockets, or maybe not using a server at all. Python can run on the client, so you may have a parser that's running straight on your browser. Mm -hmm. Which lead, which leads us to the next thing that uh, interesting to bring up, that's the types of parser. Because Python has three parsers today. Python has mm -hmm. serial parsers, async parsers, and parallel parsers. Mm, okay. So when would, I like when would, yeah. 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 Let's let's explain when when each one should be used. Right. If you're writing, so this is my recommendations. If you are writing a server uh, enclosure. That means most of your resolvers will do sync operations. You can do sync HTTP, you can do sync IO. Then I suggest you to stick with the serial parser because mm -hmm. it's the most lightweight one to run. It's simple. It will be easier to debug, especially if you are beginning. And so it's you're going to have an easier time and I stick by just use the serial parser. Uh, the async parser is one that's really good if you are writing stuff directly in JavaScript. The reason being, on JavaScript, most of the interesting operations are async. If you want to mm -hmm. load something on your own, you have to do async operations. So the async parser is still serial in the sense it only processes one resolver at a time, but it supports asynchronicity. Your resolver can return... Um, Core async channel from Clojure, and mm -hmm. Python will know how to wait for it to be realized before continuing the process. That's uh, that's how you should use async on browser, JavaScript, or Node.js maybe. The parallel parser is one that I, I really suggest most most people just don't use it at all. And uh, there is, I mean, the parallel parser it is very complex, and it has a lot of overhead as well. The way the parallel process works internally, it's it's quite tricky. There is way too much coordination code there. So mm -hmm. the only situation in which the, the I, I suggest you use the parallel parser is if you have one very huge queries, like and I'm talking like queries with at least 200 or 300 fields, mm -hmm. and you have a lot of parallelism opportunities, and for example, at Newbank, we do use that quite heavily. Uh, I mean, uh, not we, I don't work there anymore, but uh, at the project that I work there, 
it's used quite heavily because mm -hmm. the queries are huge. They have 1,200 properties or more for a single query. And, oh, they, wow. and a single query hits like 30 or 40 different services on the same query. So mm -hmm. there is a lot of parallelism opportunities here to run a bunch of things in parallel. And when you are in this situation, then the, the parallel overhead pays its cost, pays itself. Then it gets faster. But mm -hmm. for most users, this is not the case and you will not benefit from using the parallel parser. Make sense? So a quick yes. recap. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Quick recap. Serial parser for closure, async for closure script, and parallel only if you are in really crazy situations. Um, I would also use serial parser on, on closure script if you are in a situation that you don't need remote processes. And we can talk mm -hmm. more about these cases later, but that's something more for the future battle. For the current usage, async makes a lot of more sense. Mm -hmm. The next part, we talk about the parsers, and I'll just gloss over this concept of the readers from Python. And I, I don't want to get into it much. I just want to say that if you're using uh, the serial parser, always use reader2. If you use the sync parser, always use a sync reader2. And if you use parallel parser, always use parallel reader. I don't want to get into that because readers is a concept that I'm killing on the next version of Python, so I don't think it's worth going through that. So just, yeah. just remember that hint if you are using Python 2. Use the right reader with the right resolvers and you'll be good. Sounds like we need a matrix for that, when, when you should use which one. Um, but when uh, you're yeah, talking it, about... Yeah, it, sorry. You can, you can see on the documentation. If you are not sure, check the navigate to the code, the, the, doc, the doc string of the readers tell, tell where they should be used. Okay, and when you're talking about the next version of the Python, currently we are on 2, and you're talking about version 3, where the reader will be eliminated. Yeah, the, the concept of readers are... Also, the concept of the parsers. <laughs> Sorry to cut that out, to just explain that, but, but it's yeah. fine. The parser is still a simple thing. It's going to have something that's a bit similar, but no parsers or readers anymore. That's part of my work to simplify the code of Python. I mean... I'm doing this for three years now, so I'm now taking the lessons and making making the new pattern, the pattern of my right. dreams. <laughs> I see. The next thing is that you have to think about is how do you design your resolvers? What should go in a resolver? Mm -hmm. And how big or small they are. And here... Uh, my advice is just keep trying, really, because that's something you have to, you learn to get a feeling for it. But mostly is that try to make the resolvers as small as possible, except when you already paid the cost. And okay, let's get this more concrete. If you are wrapping a REST endpoint, mm -hmm. like the example you said before on Spotify track. Mm -hmm. So at the moment you did the call and got the data, you already paid a big price for everything. Like, uh, carry you want it or not, you you got everything. So if you already have that, my suggestion is just make a resolver that spits all of it. Because mm -hmm. when the user asks for specific stuff, Python is going to filter it out. But by doing this, once you loaded that data, the whole data is available, both for the user to query and for other dependencies that might need that information. So just get it all out. Mm -hmm. 
But if you are writing like computed properties, like the full name example, okay, I have first and last name, I want to compute a full name. Don't do that in the same resolver that you load the user data. Create a new resolver. And this new resolver depends on first name and last name and spits full name. Okay. One interesting property about doing things this way is that one, your resolver does the minimum viable operation and it's much easier to test because imagine if, if I were depending on a user, it could be like that if I want to call this function, I have to have an ID or an email because the user requires that. But since you're not talking about that at all, you can test this function just by calling it with the first and last name. Mm-hmm. Or if you are in a context that you don't have anything else from the customer, but you have a first and last name, this resolver will work. Mm-hmm. It's really cool that the, that the dependency graph, if you look, they are very precise. And this makes for allowing this lose things. Mm-hmm. Another concept that it's uh, around modeling is that it's interesting to merge entities. And that's the thing we already discussed before as well, that you can have mm-hmm. multiple entities on the same box per se. And if you have two one relationships, just, just make that then this way. Just allow them to be merged. This gets super useful when the relationships are farther apart. Uh, one example that you can think about is when you're calculating, maybe you have different units of measure and you want to have resolvers that convert units of measure from one to the other. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. So we can have a unit of measure and you say that we're having millimeters, then we're having centimeters, meters, right. and kilometers. In Python, you could write just the transitions between the neighbor, the neighbor units. For example, you write one resolver that converts millimeters to centimeters and one from centimeters to millimeters. Then one from centimeters to meters and meters to centimeters and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say you start with the unit in millimeters, but you want the kilometers, the kilometers. You don't have to have a resolver from millimeters to kilometers because if you have the resolvers in between, Patton can figure that out. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Because it yes. can go from yeah. millimeter to centimeter. And that's the same yeah. thing about distributed entities. That's how you can get things that are in different places and mash them together. And that's quite mm-hmm. powerful because that uh, greatly increases the reach of some data. That's the thing we talk about. We started for the customer, but now I can get Spotify track data, if that makes sense for your system. Yeah. So we talked about uh, wrapping and merging and providing small resolvers. One other thing that's interesting to do is creating references. And when you create a reference to something else, let's say, let's say you have a database, a common database. And you mm-hmm. make a user uh, an athlete, and or maybe let's let's think about a coach, a coach that can have multiple athletes, okay? And imagine you have a database where in the couch, uh, in the couch row of the table, you have a field that has the IDs, one string with the ID separated by comma. I know not ideal, but serves this example, okay? Mm-hmm. So how do you implement that relationship in Python? Uh, 
what you, you have to think is that first, the output of this property needs to be a vector or some collection. And in pattern two, you actually need to be a vector or it may not work. On pattern three, I'm supporting other types, so it can be sets, lists, or other things. But for pattern two, please stick with vectors. And what's important here is that what is the content of this vector? Like we said, first, in pattern, you should not use properties directly. You use always name the property. So each, each item of the vector should be a map. And more important is that data, that list of IDs that we took from the field, what they are, like what's the property name of, of that ID? And that would be like uh, the athlete ID, right? We have a collection of athlete IDs there. Mm -hmm. So each entry on the vector would be a map that has the key athlete ID with the specific ID. So that's how you can in Python, Python return that because now when the user makes a query and we, we're going to enter in some new topic that we didn't talk about before, that's like, how do you specify details about things? We mentioned in the terms of GraphQL when we say that from a track you can specify the artist and then you can specify what about the artist you want. Uh, in Python and EQL, you can do something similar. And then when you do your query and you say, I want the couch and I want the athletes from the couch, you would specify what do you want from the athlete as well. And that could be, I need the athlete name. So in pattern terms, by providing just the athlete IDs, you are providing the context that has enough information for pattern to use another resolver and get the name. And that's how you can start processing deep and composite entities. Mm -hmm. The important thing, the important concept to grasp from this is just that when you are relating to other entities, you just provide maps or collections of maps. And those mm -hmm. maps or collection of maps are going to be new contexts for Petom. If you want to have mm -hmm. a more practical thing, you can look in the docs and see what they look like, because mm -hmm. I think it's hard to transmit that via just audio. Mm -hmm. So these are the most common in um, API usages. I wouldn't want to be extensive because it's a lot of the same thing over and over. You're just pulling entities and relating entities and computing uh, computed values of that. I'd like to um, bring to you some ideas and some things that I personally have been working, doing with Python that I think are unusual, are more unusual and are more in a new space. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm looking for a new apartment at this time because I may move out. My contract is finishing. I'm not sure if I'm going to be staying here in the same place or if I'm going to move. Yeah. But the, but the market is heated up here, man. It's not being easy to... The good options are running out quickly. So I, I thought for myself, well, I could write a scraper that looks to the real estate websites and just lets me know when some new listing shows up so I may get there first. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I'm starting to use Python to do that. So what... And, uh, I'll, and I think it would be interesting what, what that looks like. Uh, before, and before we dive in that about how the real estate is modeled. I, I want to talk about a new feature that's coming on Petal 3. Mm -hmm. I call it smart maps. And 
Smart Maps are is a new interface, is a new way to use that resolver engine that we have been talking about. On Python 2, the only way uh, to trigger this system is by using a parser and uh, giving EQL to the parser, right? And um, but in Python 3, I thought about well, if the whole idea is having a context and asking stuff on top of that context, I can create a custom map type, and a custom map type is a data structure that response to things like a, a, a map enclosure. So you can use get, find, select keys. But I have my own custom implementations about how they work. Uh, the atomic entities are custom map types as well. So I created the pattern smart maps that is a custom map type that you provide initial context. And you, when you ask for keys that are not in the map, it's going to trigger the resolver engine and figure those out. And mm -hmm. this is quite cool to use for a lot of internal processes. So what do I have on my real estate websites? Well, to do my check, I need I need two things from, from a page. Maybe, maybe you can count it as three, but we need to know, given a URL for a real estate search, because then I'm searching for the specifics I want, I need to know what are all the listings that this page has. Mm -hmm. And if there is a next page, because it's very common for these results to be paginated. So I need to know what are the things, the, the available options, and what's the next page. So I started by writing a kind of a generic algorithm that just uh, runs a query and ask for that. Ask for the next page and ask for the all the listings. And from the listings, it asks what's the reference, like the URL or something that differentiates one apartment to the other. Mm -hmm. And I created, I defined attribute names for those operations. I have four, four attributes for this, for this whole operation. The first attribute is the page URL, which is the entry point, like start from it. We mm -hmm. have the page next URL that's relative to this URL, what's the next one? The page mm -hmm. listings is that's something that points to the collection of pages and the apartment reference that gets me some some identifier on that apartment. Right. What's cool now is that as I go to implement uh, the code for each real estate website, I can implement them as resolvers. So I have resolvers that take a page URL and get the page contents and then from the page contents, I generate the page Hickory because that's the library I'm using to parse the HTML. Great library, by the way, in Clojure. Then I have a resolver that gets the page listings. So this resolver depends on the page Hickory and outputs a bunch of listings that are maps like we described it before. It's a vector of maps. And each map, what they have inside is the Hickory. It's the Hickory, which is like... Um, a hiccup representation of that part of the page. And then I have another resolver that can get the, the item hickory and extract the apartment URL. And want to extract the next URL from the page hickory as well. So it's like five resolvers that I created here to implement one of them. Mm -hmm. But each uh, each real estate gets its own namespace. And all these keywords that I'm telling you are fully qualified to the namespace of the real estate agents. So even though I have 
properties with similar names in different they are they are not the same because they are in different namespaces so they are not colliding mm -hmm. but now those names the page url that i have in uh, i gonna i'm gonna use uh, trevo as a reference trevo is the name of one of the real estate sites Mm -hmm. So although I have the Trevo page URL, I also have the Checker page URL, and they are not the same, right? They, they are two mm -hmm. different names. This is important and good because this assumes, this never tries to assume that the things are the same just because they have the same name. Because on each context, people give different meanings to the names. So mm -hmm. by having it separated, it's good because we know, we can be sure they are not the same thing. But there are cases like this that they actually are the same thing. So what we do is I can combine the resolvers that I have there with some extra resolvers that make the connection between the names. And then I said, okay, you can convert the page URL from the scraper to the page URL to the, from the specific. Or you can convert an extra URL from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And when I combine the resolvers of the real estate plus the resolvers that make the real estate integration with that, I can run that single process that asks for the generic names. And no matter what real estate I'm integrating, it's just going to delegate the implementation correctly. And I, I'm pretty aware that it's almost impossible to make sense of all of that, as I'm saying. I'm just trying to get people excited about the idea. I'm going to post, I'm going to open source and make this available later for people. So if you are curious and interested in what, what that looks like, uh, keep an eye Keep a watch, and I'll have that right. better in the future. Wait. Maybe you're interested in buying a property in Brazil, so. <laughs> yeah, those are very specific. And those are very local. Like, I live in a very local place here, and the real estates are mostly about here. So <laughs> I, see. I, I doubt they'll have practical usage for you, but yeah, you can get the structure and apply to your own in the future. Right. So if I would be, uh, if I would be interested in using uh, Patom for something more not so scrapey, if you will. Um, what would I? What would be the the norm, normal use cases? And I mean, we talked about most of them, but maybe it's worth yeah. just to recap. Yeah, I mean, the normal use cases. I mean, the most common usage of Python these days is because you are writing a full curl app, and then you need an attribute-based API, <laughs> and there are not many options to write attribute-based APIs these days. <laughs> so you end up with Python. It's like you have not much option unless you can roll your own out, but that's a lot of work. Right. <laughs> and so most people are using to implement that. So you are exposing data rel relative to what your page needs, what your UI needs. So that's mm -hmm. the most common usage of Python. And then you're going to wrap your own, your own things or calling external APIs. And that's what would happen. And another... A uh, different uh, use case that I have that I've been playing with, and that this one is more tangible, I think, is that I'm using I'm using resolvers and smart maps internally on Python itself. And the case that I'm using it is for uh, is for graph run stats. Okay, let's let's mm -hmm. lay this down to make it easier to understand. In Python, when Python process something. When you run a query, its its steps are like this. It 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 creates a and and this I'm talking about mostly about pattern tree. Pattern tree is a bit different, but let's focus on the future here. So in pattern tree, 
it will look at your query, it will look at your data, and it's going to create a plan, an execution plan that says, oh, you're going to call this resolver and this resolver, and maybe you have these two options, and you call this or that, you're going to call this and that. It's a plan. And after it makes the plan, it has to execute the plan. And when it executes the plan, good to collect some stats about what's happening here. Mm -hmm. The information you may want, so when it, when it's writing, when it's running, it collects, let's talk about one simple property this. It collects the total time. There is how much time it took to run all the thing, the whole operation. Also, when it runs a resolver, it computes how much time this resolver specifically took to run. Because this is useful information for debugging later and tracing and trying to find bottlenecks in the processing. Mm -hmm. And as you go, it computes these two pieces, the total time and individual times for the resolvers. But these are just raw data points. They are hardly interesting by themselves. What's interesting is that what you can compute from them. For example, uh, one thing that I'm measuring a lot on developing peasantry, I'm trying to improve this, is reduce as much as I can the overhead time. There is how much time is being spent because of pattern itself. And we can calculate that by, if we get all the resolvers, individual resolver time, and sum all of that, we have the accumulated resolver time. And if we get the total time of the execution and minus the resolver execution, that and consider that the resolvers is the user code, then you get the overhead code, the overhead time, right? Mm -hmm. So now, now I get myself in this weird position that, that I think, okay, this overhead data could be really useful for my users, right? Mm -hmm. But most of the time when you run the when you are running, you don't care about stats at all. So should I compute or not this derivated data from my things, right? Should mm -hmm. I pre-compute this or not? And by using smart maps, I don't have to make that decision. Instead of computing, I just provide, I create the resolvers that can get that computation for you. And okay. what I return to you, instead of being a regular map, is a smart map that has just the raw data points plus the resolvers that calculate the other ones. So if you ask for it, you get it. And you only pay the price when you ask for it. I this, see. Yeah. This is the kind of mm -hmm. applications that I envision for pattern tree. There's a lot of this internal processing stuff. I... I <laughs> I know it sounds too much, but I'm really kind of using it for everything because it makes such such a nice system to connect all this all this data and make the data flow. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking maybe about this point, the performance and how long does it take to you know uh, get information and stuff like this. Um, when I send any query uh, to the pattern parser, this is just as you as we mentioned. This is the EDN data structure. So you would have vectors, and then you specify maps and properties. If you have a join, then it will be a map inside, right? Yeah. Um, and there is uh, there is no way, for example, to use something like data log or something like this in my parser, right? And I believe one of those reasons is the performance. Is that right? It's um. It's a different kind of abstraction, really. Uh, it, it, I think it's better if you think that there are different types of expression. Because mm -hmm. 
uh, in data log, what are we expressing? So if we break, let's break down the data log format. We use like find, and then we express the pro the things we want on the out, right? I don't even call it properties because they are usually values, but we express a, a list of things with some names that usually start with a question mark. Right. So you express that list and then you express the query, the data log query that's like that disjoint thing to connect. So it's like, it's more like a real query operation on the system. <laughs> While if you look at EQL or GraphQL, they are not about a query language. They are about a shape description. They are right. not trying to describe how to operate. They are trying to describe a data shape. And it's like a mask that has to be filled by the engine. So these are, right. these are how I see the different expressions. They, they are not even trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is not also about any kind of performance or anything like this. This is purely about the ease of use of the client to express what exactly does the client want. Yeah, um, yeah. To receive the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a different process, and you can combine those, right? You can, you can write a resolver that does a data log query. Mm -hmm. And if and if you think about it, in data log, the property I talked about traversing, traversing the full entity, automatically for you by walking the the index. That's something you don't have on data log. In data log, you have to manually keep binding and rebinding and rebinding, right? If you have something. That's very distant. So you're gonna have a lot of entries in your where part. So these are just trade-offs. They are uh, just me pointing out that they're not trying to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Some listeners might think or perceive that we're talking a lot about what, how to write Python, how to create resolvers. Uh, but maybe it's fuzzy for the listener about what these queries look like and uh, how to parse that. And for those listeners, I like, hey, listener, I like to say to you, it's better for you to figure that out by reading Python documentation, because we are here in an audio format. If I try to explain to you the syntax and how that works, it's going to be a real dread. And uh, so I'm avoiding that. So we're going to keep it talking conceptually. If, I, if you want to see it, I really invite you to check the Python docs and see all the EQL docs and see what they look like over there. Yeah, which is actually nothing more than just hidden data structures with some keys and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just as it's just a specific way to organize hidden. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or any other platform you're listening to. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it, discuss it on your own podcast, and you can support it directly by buying my video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure at my website, jacekshe.com. That's J-A-C-E-K-S-C-H-A-E.com. Thank you for your support of this show.